0: We are in the middle of a, well, five weeks into a series on the book of Revelation, week number five, and what you need to know about this book, we're calling our series uh, Reimagining Reality because Revelation is not a end times predictor book. It's not meant to give you a guide for the end times to figure out who the Antichrist is or what the mark of the beast is. Revelation was an apocalyptic letter written to seven actual churches, and they received this apocalyptic vision, this letter to them, and it meant something to them. It applied to people in the first century, giving them hope, giving them courage, giving them strength to face what they were facing. And so what Revelation, what the apocalypse wants to do for you is to help you see reality from a vantage point that you can never see reality on your own with. It wants to show you a heavenly perspective on an earthly reality. And so what happens to John in the book and what happens to us, the reader and the listener, is we get the curtain peeled back. It gets revealed to us who Jesus is, what his perspective is on all earthly realities, and how that might encourage and challenge and comfort us as well. So, We've introed the book, spent a few weeks doing that. We've looked at a few of the addresses to the seven churches. And now we come to really, it's the opening vision of the book. It's also the central vision of the book. It really is both. Chapter four begins this vision, the throne room vision, which we'll talk about in a second. But today we're going to be in chapter five, which is just the second half of the opening vision for John. What does John first see when the curtain of heaven is pulled back and he gets to see reality from a heavenly perspective? So, We're in Revelation chapter 5. We dipped our toe into Revelation chapter 4 a few weeks ago in the intro to kind of give us a sense of what the image would be like, the vision would be like, and now here we are continuing on the throne room scene of Revelation 4 and 5, this central vision. Here we go. Revelation 5, starting in verse 1, John says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So, like we said, um, chapter 4, just before this vision we just saw is where John first has the curtain pulled back on heaven. And the first thing John sees in chapter four is there's a throne room. And here's the throne room he's in. He's sitting on Patmos, the island where he's been banished to uh, by the Roman government. And he's been banished to this island. And he says in chapter four, and behold, I was sitting on Patmos and a window opened into heaven. He gets a vision into this other dimension known as heaven, this other realm. And the first thing he sees in that dimension, the heavenly realm, the heavenly dimension is a throne room. And so John's saying to you, hey, I went to the center of the universe, and it was a throne room. And chapter 4 would tell you, not only is there a throne in the center of the universe, but someone's on it. The almighty one, the infinite one, the one who was and is and is to come. He's on the throne. And then we get to chapter 5, and the first thing that John notices in this throne room scene, he's at the center of the universe, the center of all reality. It could not be deeper into reality than John is looking into, and what does he see? Chapter 5, verse 1. First thing John notices, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. A scroll written front and back, which means there's a lot to say. It's very important. Here's what a scroll was for an ancient person. When they heard that a king had a scroll in his hand, which is what John sees, that scroll is an edict. That scroll is a will, and when that scroll gets unsealed and unrolled and then read out loud, the commands and the edict and the will of the king who wrote the scroll means that now my plan is being acted out. A king would get up to announce, here's my plan for the kingdom, here's my plan for war, here's my plan for future growth, here's what we are going to do, and he would unroll the scroll and read aloud his edict, meaning when I start reading it, when I open it up and start reading it, things start to happen. So John sees this scroll sealed with seven kingly seals, seven the number of completed perfection, this perfect scroll, and what's on it? The will of the king of kings. The plan of God's redemption and judgment, the plan that encompasses and envelops all of sacred redemptive history, the plan from paradise lost to paradise regained. It's the plan and the will of God for his creation is on this scroll, which means... Then on that scroll is God's will to judge evil. On that scroll is God's plan to righteously vanquish his enemies who have shattered his shalom that he originally intended for in Genesis. And all the enemies that stand in God's way, the scroll will say, you will face judgment and you will face my wrath against evil. It's the just judgment of the almighty one on the throne. That's what's what's written on that scroll, his plan to make it all right. And so you can imagine now for the churches receiving this vision, they hear that someone's on the throne room, and they hear that that king has a scroll, and that king has a scroll, and when he unrolls it, justice is going to rain forth. A persecuted church in the first century hearing that the king of the universe has a plan to punish evil, that's really good news for them. They can't wait for that to happen because people are murdering our families. People are taking our homes and our businesses all because we won't bow to the emperor. And now John's telling us the king of the universe has a plan to make those perpetrators of evil face justice and face judgment. That's good news for them. That gives them courage to know that this is not the end of the story. The same is true for us. Opening that scroll means that human trafficking victims, means that abused children, abandoned spouses, murder victims, displaced people, refugees, all of them now can have comfort and courage knowing that the harm done to them, all those perpetrators against evil will one day face justice and judgment. When the king's scroll is unrolled, justice rains down. That's a good thing. Opening the scroll enacts the justice that the world is hungry for. Opening the scroll means the setting of right of what's been made wrong. Opening the scroll in the center of the universe, and I don't mean to be hyperbolic, this is real. Opening the scroll at the center of the universe is the answer to everything. And so, if you were tagging along with John in this window into heaven, and you saw that the king of the universe seated on the throne at the center of reality, and he had a scroll If you were with John, would you want that scroll opened? Would you want to see God's plan of redemption and justice and righteous rule come to fruition? Verse two through four. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is the king's scroll. This is the king of kings' scroll. Not just any peasant can walk up and say, let me enact that edict and break these seals. No, only one worthy to open the seals to enact the plan and the will of the king can go and open the scroll. And so, who is worthy to open the scroll? Please open the scroll. No one. John covers every realm, no one in heaven or on earth or below the earth, no one from the living or the dead. No one can open the scroll. So John weeps. John weeps loudly, we're told. John weeps audibly. John ugly cries out of despair and desperation. This is not like single tear, was there actually a cry in there? No, John's weeping and wailing at the thought that that scroll, that's the answer to everything, has to be opened and no one can open it. What's the world gonna do if that king's scroll can't be opened? And then verse five, the scene begins to lift. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, use your imagination. This is what Revelation is trying to wake up in us. Use your imagination John is weeping at the despairing thought that no one could open the scroll that will bring justice to the nations. And then an elder from the throne room comes and puts his hand on his shoulder and says to him, John, John, weep no more. I know you're wailing at the despair. There is one who can open the scroll, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's David's root. It's David's son. The king of Israel, the lion of Judah is here and he can open the scroll. Someone essentially says to John, your victorious Messiah, he can open the scroll, and he's a lion, and he will open it. And now this, if you weren't so sure yet, this is where the vision gets a little trippy, okay, uh, and marvelous. Because John hears, and, and he's, he's weeping, he's wailing, his face is down, no one can open the scroll, there's no one worthy to open the king's scroll, and then an elder comes and says, no, no, John, a lion can open the scroll. And so John lifts his head and look at what he sees after he's been weeping and he hears from an elder, a lion is here and the lion can open the scroll, verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures that represent all of creation and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of of him who was seated on the throne. Okay, John hears in his weeping, a lion can open that scroll. So what do you think, John, when he lifts his wailing head, his despairing head, what do you think he expects to see? A lion. But verse 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns, the horns represent the anointed power of the king. Completed horn. I don't know if the lamb actually had seven horns or if it's John's way of saying he was full of power. And with seven eyes, which represent wisdom. I don't know if it actually had seven eyes or not, but it represents complete wisdom. Complete wisdom, complete power. There's a lamb on the throne now. Okay, so please follow this progression for John. John's weeping and he hears a lion is here to open the scroll. And he lifts his head and he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb. A lamb that's been slaughtered. Okay, John. Thanks for capturing the vision, but this doesn't make sense. (laughs) How in the world did an elder come and tell you, hey, a lion's here to open the throne, open the scroll on the throne. And now you look up and there's a lamb there. What John sees is surprising to him because of what he's heard. Which means... Follow me here. John is at the center of reality and what's he experiencing? He's experiencing a paradox. What's a paradox? It's two seemingly contradictory things that are both true and somehow they don't contradict each other. In fact, they actually make the truth more true. Two seemingly contradictory things that don't contradict each other, they make the truth more true. How can a lion be a lamb? How can a victorious king Messiah be slaughtered? How can a slaughtered lamb, who I see the slit on his throat, I see the blood, how can a slaughtered lamb now be standing and more alive than ever on a throne? John is at the center of the universe, and yet he's in the middle of a paradox. Because, as Jesus would well make known, Many times, reality is a paradox. Like light. Any scientists in the room? It's been noted before that uh, light has been scientifically proven to be a particle. There are particles of light in the air. And yet, at the same time, light has been scientifically proven to be a wave. But a wave can't be a particle, and a particle can't be a wave, but light is both. And do you doubt the existence of light? You're living in it. And yet it's a paradox. The very reality of light is a paradox. It's both things. And the two true things that seemingly contradict actually make it more true. John is saying, I was at the center of reality. I was in the throne room of the universe. And I was in the presence of a paradox. There was a lion and the lion was a lamb. And in fact, if you keep pulling on this thread, you would find that Christianity itself is full of paradoxes. Do you know if you're in the room and you're a Christian, you confess paradoxical things all the time? Like that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Doesn't make sense. Both true. Or that you confess that you believe in God's sovereignty, his utter kingship and his rule, and you believe that he allows suffering. Doesn't make sense. Paradox. Or that Jesus would say the first will be last and the last will be first. No, Jesus, in my book, the first are first. And if you're not first, you're last, said one theologian. You know, like, but no, Jesus flips all that on his head and says, no, the first will be last and the last will be first, And then Jesus says crazy things like, do you know that you will have sorrow now, but your sorrow will turn into joy? Do you know that you are mourning now, but your mourning will be turned into dancing? Do you know that the least in the kingdom of God is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Do you know, if you want to go to like the most paradoxical place in all of Jesus' teaching, go to the Sermon on the Mount and go to that chapter 5 that talks about the Beatitudes. Because those don't make any sense. Blessed are the poor I'm sorry, Jesus, we have different economic views. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who weep. My weeping doesn't feel like a blessing, Jesus. But you're saying, blessed when I'm weeping. Blessed am I when I'm hungry. Blessed am I when I'm being persecuted? This doesn't make any sense, Jesus. And John would be standing with us in the throne room and saying, I know it's a lion and it's a lamb. And both things are true. What are you talking about, Jesus? How can all of these paradoxical things both be true? Good songwriters know how to capture this. Bono says in his song, Mysterious Ways for You Too, if you want to kiss the sky, you better learn how to kneel. Wait, wait, wait. How, how can kneeling help me reach higher? How can kneeling help me kiss the sky? How does this work? It doesn't make any sense, but that's the point exactly. Paradoxes don't make sense. Actually, paradoxes are meant to come in and disrupt all the things in our logical brains that we love to be nice and tidy and neat and all cleaned up and all the logic makes sense and all the reason makes sense and paradoxes come and blow all that up so that we would realize, oh, I'm not actually seeing the truth until I see it in a paradoxical way. Paradoxes are meant to disrupt our default brain order to help us see the beauty of the truth that we can't fully explain. Over and over in the Gospels, over and over in the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus will say things, he'll do things, he'll just be things. And the crowd, his disciples or his followers, they will have a dual reaction to him. And the reactions are paradoxical over and over again. After he calms the water on the storm, after he, after he hushes the winds and the waves, we're told that the disciples are terrified. They're more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm, and at the same time, they glorified him, meaning they're really afraid of him, and they're worshiping him. Like, they they're really, really don't want to be near him, and they can't get enough of him. How can both things be true? Because Jesus is a paradox, Jesus doesn't fit into our categories. He can't be fully systematized, and he's not nice and neatly tucked into your theological suitcase. It doesn't work, because Jesus is a paradox. He's such a paradox, it drove the Pharisees mad, and they killed him for it. You can't claim to be God and be a man. You can't claim to be a man and forgive sins. You can't do both things, Jesus. Which is what we normally do with paradoxes we try to kill them. We normally try to explain the paradoxes away. We'd normally try to make one of the truths of the paradox seem less true so that we can kind of dismiss it and keep just the one true thing. We try to make it simple enough for us to fully understand it because if we fully understand it, then maybe we can control it. But life is a paradox And so when two apparently contradictory things seem to be true at the same time, we don't fully understand it. We get afraid of it and we want to kill it off. I don't want to live in the tension of this paradox. But if reality, if the center of reality is a paradox, do you see what would happen to us if we simply demand that our reality become a fiction and lose the tension of the paradox? so that we can understand it better and control it better. If we dismiss that and make reality a fiction, here's what we end up doing. If we want our life to have no paradoxes and no tension, we lose our wisdom, we lose our joy, and actually we lose our ability to be fully human. Shockingly, Hollywood captures this brilliantly in Inside Out, Pixar movie. If you're not a parent and you haven't seen it, be careful. but it's, it's fantastic. It's so good. I don't say be careful because it's like I'm saying you're going to weep, not because there's anything bad in it. It's amazing. But here's what, here's what Inside Out captures. Inside Out is the inner emotional life of a preteen girl, which is full of paradoxes, I'm told. And here's, here's, what, here's what Joy, the main character, the main emotion inside of the preteen girl, here's what she comes to discover in her journey. She's trying to get rid of sadness. Sadness because she's joy. I don't want any sadness around. And the way that Pixar embodies it and captures it and storylines it is amazing, because here's what joy comes to find out. There is no joy without sadness. In fact, if you try to remove one of them, you lose both of them. How's that possible? How is there no joy without sadness? Paradox. Because what the movie is nailing for the viewer is that if you take realities that are paradoxes and you try to make it be one or the other, you're actually taking away from both of them. You lose both of them at the same time. Ask any good counselor in town, can two true things be true at the same time that are apparently contradictory? Can you be happy and sad at the same time? Can you hold two competing emotions at the same time? Yes. If your counselor disagrees with that, fire them. What Joy learns is if she loses sadness, there will be no sadness or joy. And then the Christian has to deal with that premise on all kinds of things. Like Jesus saying, there will be no dancing without mourning. And there will be no glory without suffering. And ultimately, there will be no resurrection without death. Our inability to live in the tension of that paradox is why we are so frustrated. Our inability to hold two things, two true things that seem to contradict each other and not live in the tension of that, to not let two true things be true at the same time is why you're so frustrated. It's why your marriage is hard because you and your spouse can both be right and wrong at the same time. It's why your job is frustrating. It's why your vocation has no vitality. It's why your spiritual growth seems to have fits and starts. It's why your, your, your prayer life or your scripture life has no vigor because we're, we so don't like the tension of the paradox that we just avoid it altogether. Our inability or maybe unwillingness to live in the tension of paradox is what makes us go mad. We demand to fully understand the paradox. And here's here's kind of the point. Paradoxes can't be understood. They can, however, be known. And they can, however, be experienced. That's what's happening to John. He can't explain the paradox. He's just experiencing it. Jesus is somehow this lion and a lamb at the same time. J.I. Packer, the late Anglican professor at Regent College up in Canada, brilliant man, he wrote about this idea, this reality in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, two things that seem to contradict each other but don't have to. This is a scholar. Here's what he says you, the Christian, must do when we come up against two. True things that seem to contradict each other, but both are true. Here's what he says we have to do. This is from a scholar now. He says, deal with it. (laughs) Thanks, J.I. It's really helpful. He says, you just have to deal with it (laughs) because both things are true. And you have to grow in your comfortability of living in the paradox and letting both true things remain true. That's what's happening to John. Did, Did you notice like nowhere in John's vision, he doesn't do it now and he won't do it at all in the, in the, vision, in the visions to come of Revelation. Uh, he doesn't spend any time asking the listener or the reader if they are like okay with the paradox of Jesus being a lion and a lamb at the same time. He's like, I know what I saw, but are you like? can I nuance this for you and can I answer any questions you have? No, he just presents it and then makes the reader deal with it because that's what he's doing. He doesn't stop and ask the reader, like, do you you understand all this? Are you you comprehending all this? I don't want to move on until you fully get it. Like, can you imagine what would have happened if we had been in the room with him, seeing the throne room vision, and Jesus is this lion, and he's this lamb. How is this paradoxical thing true? We said, hey, John, can you just slow the vision down for a second? I got some questions. Would you answer for me, John, Um, is Jesus the lion or the lamb? John would have said, like, Hey, why did I bring you? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what you mean. I don't understand the question. Like it just is, it, it, it's both things. And If we try to explain one of them away, we're going to lose them both. That's what John is experiencing. That's what he wants us to take in. I'm in the presence of a paradox and I'm not trying to explain it away. I'm just experiencing it and I'm okay with the tension of it. G.K. Chesterton, writer of the last century or so, who is also known as the Prince of Paradox. He said it this way. He said, it is the logician, like the one who uses logic to see the world. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head and therefore understand it. And it is his head that explodes. But the poet is merely the one who asks to get his head into the heavens. that's what's happening to John. That's what John wants us to take in. I can't explain all of this. I don't understand all of this, but I'm seeing it and I want you to see it too. Jesus is the lion of Judah and he's the slaughtered lamb at the same time. And at this paradoxical center of the universe, this center of reality would lead the viewer to the most paradoxical piece of the reality of Jesus. Of all the paradoxes of Jesus, perhaps no one is more more beautifully captured than this paradox of Jesus in the throne room is this paradox of salvation. That's really what is striking to John. Go back back to the scroll. Like he sees the scroll in the hand. Remember the scroll? And he asked, the, the angel asked the question, is anyone worthy to open the scroll? No one is worthy to open the scroll. And John notes for us, no one in heaven, no one on earth or no one under the earth was worthy to open the scroll. Please note in that John is including himself in those that are not worthy to open the scroll. Meaning John doesn't look around and go, heaven, earth, well, guess is my scroll to open then? Like John knows I'm not worthy to open the scroll. I'm not worthy to go approach the throne and touch his scroll. So if no one's worthy to open the scroll, then all hope is lost. But then John hears one is worthy and it's a lion. And all the images that would have filled John's mind, that lion will roar and that lion will deliver justice. That lion will vanquish his enemies. That lion will destroy all who oppose him and his kingdom. Which means when that lion comes to administer the justice that's written on that scroll, when that lion comes to enact the edict and the will of the king who wrote the scroll, he is going to destroy anyone who stands in the way of the kingdom of God. That lion is going to devour anyone not worthy to be a part of the kingdom. And so John is having to do the spiritual economics of this. No one's worthy to open that scroll. And that, when that lion comes to open the scroll, he's going to devour all who are not worthy. Because the king's a lion. And if you don't know that the king's a lion, then you've never stood before him. But this lion is also a lamb, and he's a blood-stained lamb, and I love this scene in verse 7 where it says the blood-stained lamb, the one who had been slaughtered but was fully alive, takes the scroll, like the confidence of the slaughtered risen lamb goes up and grabs the scroll as if to say, I've got this. I will do the work necessary to open this scroll. I will do the work necessary to enact the will of the king and the job listed on this scroll. I will do the work. And actually, in our timeline of things, what would be even better news is that the lamb was actually saying, I've already done it. I've already done the work to make sure this scroll gets carried out. In the words of the slaughtered, suffocating lamb, it is finished. That's why I'm standing on this throne more alive than I've ever been. I've already done the work. That's why I can be on this throne. See, because the lamb that was sitting on the throne had already been slaughtered and he had already been raised and he had been seated at the throne on the right hand of God, the father. And because the lamb was slaughtered, here's what it meant for John. I don't have to be. For this lamb to enact the coming of the kingdom of God, to make the plan on the scroll happen, the God had decided that they would not wipe out their people, but they would ransom them. Somehow God was able in the person of Jesus to wipe out evil and not wipe out his people. Here's the great paradox of salvation. The one who ought to devour you has ransomed you instead paradox and from our call to worship in Isaiah 53 here's what Isaiah 53 says about this salvific paradox he took up your unworthiness and he bore the weight of it and now you are worthy because he did so He took your shame. He took your disgrace. He took it all and he washed you whiter than snow. And so now Isaiah 53 says this about this mysterious paradox. Through the wounds of the slaughtered lamb, we get healed. The one who ought to devour you has ransomed you. Every Jew, when they heard any Jew reading this, hearing this for the first time, would have had plenty of images when when John said, oh, I, I heard a lion is here. They would have had plenty of images about a lion from the Old Testament that would have filled their imaginations. Our Messiah, our coming king, our victorious one is gonna come like a lion. He's going to vanquish all of his enemies. He's gonna rule and overrule and he's gonna bring his will and his kingdom to bear in this world. That's our lion. And then any Jew would have also had Tons of images from their religious system about a lamb. Sacrificial system was full of lambs. Day of Atonement had a pretty key lamb. And then the lamb of all lambs was the Passover lamb for a Jew. And so tons of images filling their mind for both things. A lion is full of images for them and a lamb is full of images for them. No Jew in history could have imagined that their lion would be their lamb. That the two could actually be the same person. They could never have imagined this. That's the paradox. If you try to explain it away or loosen the tension or diminish one of the sides, you will lose them both. Romans 4 captures the paradox this way. God who justifies the ungodly. Hey, uh, God, if you're a just judge, you can't justify the ungodly. And God says, watch me. (laughs) Because I'm the lion and the lamb and I can hold both things. Only I can be just and justifier. And when we experience that paradox, the paradox of salvation, it actually makes us a paradox. It makes our, ex- our very existence a paradox. In the words of Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, he would say, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously sinner and saint. And if you try to diminish either one, that's who you are simultaneously, just and sinner. Simultaneously, sinner and saint. Both are true at the same time. If you try to diminish either one, you will lose your sense of self because you are a paradox. You are both There's a difference between holding a paradox and the tension of it and being duplicitous and being pharisaical. This does not mean, oh, sweet, I'm full of paradoxes. That's awesome. I get to follow Jesus and do whatever I want. No, that's called hypocrisy, not a paradox. God is the one who holds the paradox. You don't get to determine the limits of them. So what do we do? What do we do that we are now a paradox? Simul justus et peccator. I'm simultaneously sinner and saint, and both are true. We are to follow John's lead and simply do what we just sang a few moments ago. We behold it. It's the most common command in the whole book of Revelation. Look, John says. It's it's an imperative verb. You have to look at this. Look at what I saw and behold it with him. Behold the lion and the lamb. Behold that you are unworthy and behold that he has made you worthy. Behold that the lion ought to trample you, but instead the lamb was slaughtered for you. Behold the beauty and gaze upon it. And your shame is going to want to make you turn away, and your mind is going to want to make you ask qualifying questions. Don't do either. Simply behold the paradox of beauty. The lion and the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll has ransomed you. And when you do, when you are beholding Jesus, you will be getting your head into the heavens. You will be getting your head into the heavens. And when you do, just like Isaiah 53 promises, by beholding his wounds, it will heal you. And the more we can stand in the presence of that paradox, the paradox of our own salvation, we will be able to live in the tension of all of them. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a paradox. You don't make any sense And those that think that they can understand you have become fools. But Jesus, while we can't understand you, we can know you. You've revealed yourself to us through your word and your spirit. Would you now reveal to us the great paradox, not just of our salvation, but of the universe? You are the lion and the lamb, and you are worthy to open the scroll because of what you've done. Free us from our questions, rid us of our shame and our disgrace, and give us the freedom and the joy of simply beholding you and doing what these members of the throne room do when they behold you. They just worship you. Might we behold this mystery. Might we behold this paradox and be healed by it. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.